0: Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond. This episode is sponsored by ArisX.com, the Stellar Development Foundation, and Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. The Breakdown is produced and distributed by CoinDesk. Here's your host, NLW. Welcome back to The Breakdown.
1: It is Tuesday, May 12th, and today we have something a little bit different and very cool. At 8 a.m. Eastern Time, I helped wrap Consensus Distributed, a 24-hour virtual event with a live episode of The Breakdown. The theme was how we future now. It is all about things that are shifting around us in the context of COVID-19, but maybe in just the world at large. And so we had four different guests over the course of an hour talking about different domains in which the future was shifting. We started with how we game and entertain now with a conversation with Kathleen Brateman. Kathleen was a co-founder at Tezos and is now working on Coast, which is an organization focused on digital and collectible card games. Their first game is called Emergence and has Magic the Gathering Hall of Famers working on it. And we talk about what blockchain can do to help game designers design entire ecosystems and economic systems around their games. Next up, we talked to Muneeb Ali, the CEO of Blockstack, about identity and really about what it means to have true digital ownership over the networks that you participate in and the the networks of content that you build. So that was the second clip. On the third segment, we talked to Caitlin Long about how we bank now and what it means to try to build a bank for a new era in which maybe we prioritize different things. Caitlin Long is founding something called Avanti, which is a bank that can actually custody crypto assets but doesn't take title to them. So there's 100% proof of reserves at any given time. They can't lend out those assets unless it's you authorizing a direct lend to a specific person. So basically, they are a very kind of old world in some ways version of what a bank might be. Finally, we talked to Jun Ian Wong, who is one of the lead producers of this event of Consensus Distributed. About how we event now and about why events are in some ways proxy for the shared consensus that we need around money systems, around economic systems. It's a really cool, very varied set of conversations. It was super fun to do live. Coindesk's consensus has events throughout the week. There's something like 112 different sessions that you can go check out from the technical to a focus on markets that'll be going throughout the week. You just have to go to their page and go to the events tab, and then you can sign up and register for free for all this. So a really, really cool set of content for you there. And I was glad to be a part of it. I was glad to help them wrap it up. So anyways, guys, that's going to be the episode for today. I hope you enjoy all of these guests and we will be back tomorrow with another episode of The Breakdown. Until then, be safe and take care of each other. Peace. Welcome back to Consensus Distributed and welcome back to The Breakdown. For those of you who are new, who are fresh, The Breakdown is a daily podcast by me, Nathaniel Whittemore, at NLW on Twitter that is all about how the world and the economy is changing. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about something that I think is on so many people's mind, which is where the world we're headed into next is going. We've had this kind of pivotal inflection moment around COVID-19, around the economic shutdowns that has made us question a lot of things that we thought were sacrosanct, were, were fixed, were going to be the same way they were forever. And so what we're gonna do on this show is explore what the future looks like across a number of different dimensions. We're going to talk about identity and how the relationship between citizen information and governments works. We're going to talk about banking and the fundamental way in which people can interact with their money. We're going to talk about events, right? This experience that we've all been part of and how coming together might look different in the future, but we're going to start with something that has been particularly important during this time of quarantine, how we game and entertain now. And to do that, I'm joined by Kathleen Breitman. Kathleen Breitman was a founder at Tezos and is now leading a very cool uh, startup focused on bringing blockchain gaming to reality. Kathleen, thanks for hanging out.
2: Thanks for having me and thanks for the gracious introduction.
1: Sure. Okay. So uh, let's start with the, the context and how you got from point A to point B. You built a base layer protocol and decided for your next act to focus on a blockchain game studio. What was it about games or, or the particular type of game that you're building that seemed like such a good fit for the blockchain?
2: Oh, thanks for asking. And um, yeah, no, no one does any of these things alone, but um, I, I do get credit for co-founding uh, the Tizos blockchain, which launched back in 2018, um, you know, once once uh, the network and the prevailing um, blockchain kind of got its sea legs in terms of si- seeing an ecosystem system built around it, um, I began to think like, hey, you know, what's the coolest application um, that I think could be built um, that would, you know, be expedient and kind of testing out uh, the virtues of a cryptocurrency. And um, I think that smart contracts in particular do um, uh, do one thing really, really well. They like help people coordinate um, and they can facilitate better secondaries markets. And so I wanted to kind of um, test that thesis out. Um, and I thought that the most broken um, uh, fully digitized economy um, would, would be in gaming, um, which tend to have like sort of natural um, areas where um, people converge and try to coordinate themselves, um, which sounds a lot like a traditional economy, um, but has the benefit of not um, having to interact with the quote unquote real world and you know, have this this night tight digital loop. Um, it's funny because one of the um, one of the largest contributors to the Tezos Foundation's two thousand and seventeen fundraiser um, was actually a gaming company, and so I had a little bit of a head start in the sense that um, I was familiar with some of the working theses that this company had um, when they um, when they started to look at a public blockchain as the source of um, you know potentially addressing some of the ills in their uh, native economy. Um, but I, I wasn't super um, convinced. Um, So I did a little bit of an informal survey of my own and I looked at the different types of games that exist and I thought that collectible card games um, in their digital format uh, suffered the most from, uh, I guess, uh, the break between how people understand their um, analog you know, e- economies and games and their digitized models. So um, at COSE, um, you know, I like to say that we're not necessarily a gaming studio, but we really focus more on uh, facilitating better secondaries markets. And the way we've <laughs> decided to choose that um, uh, is, is through the production of an original collectible card game, um, Though we're also looking at other um, aspects of collectible models and, and trying to create and you know better secondary markets are from them um, using smart contracts
1: so it's a bunch of bunch of interesting follow-up questions. But for, for people who aren't familiar, let's take it back to collectible card games because there's a precedent. And a lot of what I just heard from you is that this has to do with uh, trying to bring into digital parallel the, the analog experience, right? And so in the history of collectible card games has this interesting kind of two-part function where on the one hand, there's players who get these cards and they play games with them and they make decks with them and they do all that stuff. But then there are these markets that around them. And in fact, the markets have been a lot of how people have gotten interested in this domain, right? NPR doing series about uh, the Black Lotus and Magic the Gathering. So I guess one of the things that's really interesting to me uh, listening to you speak is that the logic for, for blockchain-based gamings has been uh, kind of... Uh, argued on a couple different levels. People have talked about both true digital ownership of goods, and they've talked about this idea of making easier secondary markets. So maybe you could speak to, it sounds like for you that the secondary markets piece is really important, but maybe that, that implicates the, the first part, true digital ownership by definition. Could you speak a little bit to, uh, to kind of why that secondary market piece is such an important part of the thesis for games on the blockchain?
2: Yeah, absolutely, and that's um, <laughs> a very astute summation of um, <laughs> a lot of the ideas that I've had. Um, yeah, no, basically, with with uh, traditional collectible card games such as um, Magic: The Gathering being the most famous and the most notable, um, you know, typically in their analog versions, uh, people are like 50-50. You have this notion of like battle and you know actually playing the game, and then almost equally, you'll find if you go to a Magic convention or something like this, um, people are just really into collecting the cards and being able to trade. Um, and border with people and kind of um, make friends um, to some extent. Like, I think really what's driving this at the end of the day is the community around it. Um, You know, Fortnite now has uh, 350 million um, players, (laughs) which is insane. And, you know, um, 3.2 billion hours played in April alone. Um, You know, people don't just come for the game itself. They also come to be with their friends. They come to show off. They come to express themselves. And I think, um, you know, one consistent line between Tezos and um, my thesis around Coase has been that if you empower people to kind of be able to make their own um, law and to express themselves with using, um, you know, sort of the the mechanisms and the um, incentives that you give them, like you really do wind up getting an impassioned um, group of folks. And so, yeah, t- to your point, um, you know, there's two axes of this. There's like the notion of actually owning, um, a card, which, which, uh, a blockchain uniquely allows you to do. and allows you to kind of port, um, from one place to another. Um, one really cool thing that we can do with our game is, you know, publish an SDK and have you run alternative, you know, rules engines, right. And explore the same way that you could with a physical asset. Um, the other aspect of this is better coordination. And, um, you know, typically, um, where digital collectible card games have struggled is in making people feel like they've um, become smarter um, for putting money into the game or t- for you know buying a card um, because they, they uh, you know, typically can't um, trade these assets in a very, um, I guess, seamless fashion, but a blockchain might allow you to do that better. And using um, smart contracts, for example, um, to facilitate a secondaries market um, for these assets, um, makes it a lot easier and programmatically, you know, liquid in the model that we've proposed for our first game emergence.
1: So it's really interesting. I'm going to out myself as a, as a geek here, obviously you and I have talked about this in the past and I, I, Started playing Magic in 1994 when I was 10 years old, and took a very long break, but then came back to it later in life, and have always been interested in in the the resilience, the resonance, the long term growth. Right, this is a game that's lasted now for 27 years, uh, you know, or longer, which is really unheard of in a, a lot of game dimensions. And one of the things that's fascinating, if you look at uh, historical antecedents in that ecosystem, is the way in which the simple fact of it being this uh, this card game, right? With physical things is that the community of people around it have invented a huge number of the most important parts of the ecosystem now, right? Wizards of the Coast, which is the company that publishes Magic, has said numerous times that one of the formats, so there's multiple ways to play Magic the Gathering, uh, and one of the formats that is most popular, perhaps the most popular, is called Commander, which was invented by judges and later became kind of pretty much one of the biggest moneymakers for this company. The problem is that when you move from the 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 offline ecosystem where the rules are inherently kind of open to you doing whatever you want to the closed ecosystem of an online game, all that creativity goes out the window. And so one of the things that it sounds like to me listening to you is that you're almost trying to use some of the features of blockchain to build the capacity for people to design the system, to reinvent the system, to reimagine the system into the actual rules of the ecosystem. Is uh, Is that accurate?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you're picking up exactly what I'm what I'm putting down. Uh, so yeah, it's I think um, I, I think it, it comes from one thing that Hasbro does really really well um, in the context of Match of the Gathering. It has a tremendous amount of humility towards um, the people who constitute its its core demographic. Like it has a lot of reference for its end users, um, and uh, they've really preserved the. Um, Magic the Gathering brand, um, by listening to the community and working largely in tandem with them. And so, um, you know, Hasbro gets the benefit of being able to publish new cards, um, and to kind of add to this ecosystem, um, you know, facilitate tournaments and so so forth. Um, but they listen just as much as they, as they write. And, um, with the benefit of having, um, you know, this, this analog format is that they've, they've picked up some really good tricks. Um, they haven't been able to, I, I think, um, uh, thread some of the needles when they've gone to digital formats um, by facilitating the same uh, creativity um, you know maybe maybe if they went to a blockchain they, they would they would uh, find that a little easier um, but yes the idea has been um, to allow you know to, to basically work really hard on creating original and compelling um, cards and um, you know, cool stuff about the game in general, um, obviously I have a lot of faith in my, my co-founders um, who know far more about this than I do, um, but the, the main, the main uh, concession that we want to make and the main um, relationship we want to have with people who, who play the game um, is to facilitate the type of creativity and self-expression that um, Magic and other uh, CCGs were able to do um, seamlessly in the physical um, world, but to add on um, better economics through the use of a um, public blockchain to coordinate, um, with the, uh, you know, second part of this, which is, um, the facilitation of, of, uh, moving assets around in the game.
1: So just, just for briefly, I think for people who are listening, who are just thinking about this for the first time, what does it mean? How does a blockchain, uh, mediate for real asset ownership and how does that allow for, uh, formal secondary markets to develop? I think that's a that's a missing point right like what's different about a card in one of your games versus a card in magic the gathering online or hearthstone for example
2: oh yeah sure um so basically uh, I, I suppose when these um when these games were digitized or brought to the fore um they they did so using a sort of free-to-play model um you know basically you would you would grind and com- complete tasks in order to earn credit um, towards towards um, purchasing assets in this game um, largely the publishers of these games have restricted the movement of these assets once they are um, you know seized um, or purchased or whatever um, in, in the game and so consequently you have um, a massive a massive tax on any sort of creativity um, you have a strong incentive to be very conservative in how you um, express yourself with these with these um, uh, I, I suppose strategies um, because you can't Opt in and out of a card as easily um, because there's really no secondary use market, or if there is one, it's um, taxed. You know, they were at the order of like seventy percent on the um, you know value of the card from when it was uh, when it was purchased.
1: Got it. So with your game, basically, you officially make it you make it easier for people to actually that once they get a card, it's their asset. They can do whatever they want with it, uh, and that's sort of not just uh, enabled but supported or encouraged.
2: Yeah. Um, what's more, we also have, um, you know, an auction and, and rental model um, that is uh, uh, tied to a token bonding curve, right? So we also use this sort of novel um, piece of technology that's that's been proposed um, from, you know, thinkers largely in the Ethereum community um, to, to have sort of like programmatic liquidity. So basically you can buy a card, you know, for... Twenty bucks, and you can you know theoretically sell it back um, for like nineteen ninety five or whatever we, whatever we programmatically decide for it to be. Um, but the idea is you don't feel dumb um, for having uh, having kind of put your put your um, stake into like one card or another. Um, you know you you have the assurance um, that you can kind of um, experiment and, and move around freely. And we think that that's that's really going to be appealing and actually addressing a huge problem in. Um, the, digital, the digital space for these, these types of games.
3: Well,
1: it's interesting. So bonding curves are one of these constructs that people hear about, and it seems kind of like the peak of theoretical, but not applicable to the real world, or, or maybe like a solution in search of a problem. But when we spoke previously, uh, one of your co-founders, V. Masowitz, who's a magic hall of famer and is widely known as one of the most interesting thinkers in the history of the game, had basically come to a structure, something like a token bonding curve without knowing that that was what it was called, right?
2: Yes, Zvi is a genius, and so no one is surprised that he would independently come up with all these ideas and anymore <laughs> more um, in the beautiful space that is his mind, which is pure and and uh, and, and brilliant as it is. But yeah, no, Zvi is not just um, a professional magic the gathering player, he also actually has a background in financial economics. And so um, what I really like about Zvi's background is um, if you're going to be introducing a marketplace into some place that t- typically hasn't had a free marketplace, um, you need a sort of Way of thinking that's very adversarial, and um, Nathaniel, you would know more than more than most people who are probably tuning into this. Um, that's V is sort of famous in magic circles for being um, just a ferocious competitor and um, thinking 15 steps ahead of everyone else who's around him. So I'm um, I'm I feel like I'm in good hands um, on the design of the economic um, model and, and system. Um, though obviously the proof will be in the pudding. Um, you know, once we ho- hopefully launch. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah.
1: Okay so let's let's zoom out a little bit. You mentioned Fortnite, you mentioned community happening. How have you seen COVID-19 and these economic shutdowns shifted or accelerated our conversations around gaming and entertainment and community and what it all means?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, you know, this the sad part is that um, you know many people are stuck at home. Um, a lot of people are are uh, I, I guess looking into ways to preoccupy themselves that are wholesome and nice and uh, kind of take away from the uh, dreariness that is the world right now. Um, and so, at least in the context of paying attention to collectible card games as a as a genre, um, there's been a bit of a resurgence in tabletop games and um, and, and, and these types of formats. Um, and so I, I suppose it ties back to community. It ties back to like, um, feeling human again. Um, and, uh, I think gaming, game, gaming has always been like a social, um, you know, a social network, um, in some ways, if you're, if you're part of something sufficiently big and interesting. Um, but what's nice about the internet is it, 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 it can give you a reprieve, um, from the, uh, you know, rather depressing situation that we're all facing right now. Um, and it gives you just some, something to talk about other than, uh, fake news articles on Facebook or whatever, whatever people do, um, on social network these days.
1: Well, it's interesting, too, because even going back right from the beginning, when you're talking about the design of uh, this game, which your first game is called Emergence, right? Um, I don't think we even mentioned that. Um, It it really is, you're designing an entire ecosystem, right? You're designing an entire economy that happens to be anchored by a set of assets, a set of cards, and a set of rules that dictate gameplay, but you really have to think about the design of the whole ecosystem. And it reminds me of how one of the things that we've seen is Fortnite, for example, moving into this variety of other different uh, experiences, right? So Fortnite ceases to be just a game, you know uh, a battle royale game, and instead becomes a whole set of things where you can take your avatar, you can take your character into this virtual space, into this shared virtual space, and do interesting things, right? And so we've seen concerts, we saw Marshmallow before the crisis, we saw Travis Scott during it. But now I think that they just didn't they just release a new uh, world, I think, or a new plane. I'm, I'm not actually that super familiar with, with Fortnite and how it's organized, but they introduce an area that's not for guns at all, right? It's for literally like hanging out. And, uh, and, I, and I just wonder how much these how much this time is going to provide kind of the the accelerant for people to think about these virtual spaces in a different way
2: yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I explicitly didn't want to get involved in anything that was sort of an RPG because effectively you're running a movie studio. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and I just don't have enough money, um, uh, on hand to, uh, to, to play that game. Um, so obviously it, it appeals to a certain demographic. Um, in some ways it's, it's more, um, widely appealing than, uh, collectible card games, which, you know, have a pretty high, have a pretty high tax upfront in, in understanding how to, how to play. But if you do, you get like, you know, sufficient depth and, and, um, I suppose user engagement at some level, um, but uh, but yeah, no, I, I I think sort of breaking um, breaking this down and, and giving people um, a forum where they can have the sort of collective experiences that we um, you know a few generations back would often have through through kind of television and um, and more um, traditional means um, is is kind of like the 21st century um, you know watching the the man uh, you know. Walk in the moon type of type of thing that everyone can kind of reference together, um, and uh, and having these like shared experiences, like you know the the massive mm-hmm. um, um, Travis Scott concert in Fortnite, right? And it, it, that's it's kind of nice that we're able to have that as a um, society again.
1: So by, by way of wrapping up, just kind of one more ponderous question, I guess. Uh, what's one thing, when you look at the reality of entertainment or gaming in the time of these COVID-19 shutdowns, what's one thing that you think will go away, maybe retreat and go back to normal, some experience that people have or something, some way that people are acting? And what's one thing that's a more permanent change about how we think about entertainment or, or gaming?
2: Um, That's a great question and I I, I wish I had more conviction in my answer, but I guess I'll just um, kind of back into the more milquetoast observation that I think people didn't think of People didn't think of games as social, social networks as much um, anymore because there are you know, basically social networks like Twitter um, and Facebook that have come to the fore over the last few years. Um, I think games are kind of a unique opportunity to bring back um, a more wholesome version um, where you know, your interactions aren't solely expressing your opinion. It's also like going through problems together. Um, and I think that can be quite nice. Um, and I, I do hope there's more of that um, because I think it's more, for, more family friendly for starters. Um, and it also, it also kind of reflects the reality that we're, we're all in this together. Um, and I think now more than ever, uh, we're, we're acutely aware of um, how dependent we are on our neighbors and um, sort of communities um, to keep ourselves safe and, and to um, uh, protect people who are more vulnerable. And it's kind of nice that um, gaming can be part of um, a more positive story. Whereas I think culturally um, over the last few years, it's gotten a pretty bad rap.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it is interesting to see this big shift from, you know, again, going back to those early days when uh, uh, my parents were seeing stories about magic being satanic to uh, this very different place that gaming has in the world. Um, Kathleen, mm-hmm. where can people find- <laughs>
2: Mm -hmm. um because that that just makes it more appealing to 13 year old boys (laughs) i know Um,
1: seriously it's like you guys don't know this is like the best branding that you could possibly have um (laughs) for for people who want to learn uh what's one thing that people should know about about emergence itself about the game and for people who want to actually experience this where can they go for updates and to pay attention
2: Oh yeah, please sign up for our mailing list at emergence.gg, um, as, in, as in good game. And um, if you want to learn more about the philosophy behind its so own and so forth, you can visit our main company website, which is coa.se. So co is in um, The Economist, Ronald. Um, so thank you very much for, for giving me the opportunity to plug it. I, I feel like a bad CEO for not even mentioning the name of the game uh, several minutes into the interview, but um, I'm learning, I'm iterating, <laughs> um, try, awesome. trying my best. <laughs>
1: Thank you for being here, Kathleen. We'll talk to you soon.
2: Thanks so much. Take care.
1: All right. So from the world of gaming and entertainment to a world which is in some ways overlapping because I think identity overlaps with everything. Our conversation about identity has to do with, as I mentioned, everything from gaming and who we are and these sort of avatars we create to much more kind of pertinent social issues like contact tracing and how we validate to the government that we are not corona-carrying, right? So now we have an interesting conversation with Munib Ali. Munib is the CEO of Blockstack and a very wide-ranging thinker. Uh, Munib, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So uh, nominally, we'll start with identity. I'm sure that we'll go way off the beaten path. Uh, But let's start uh, on the biggest level. I know you have to to structurally think about this in in your work with Blockstack. but for someone who isn't used to thinking about identity as a discipline or as an entire area, how does identity uh, or the construction of identity play into our daily lives?
4: Yeah, so I think uh, in a very broad sense, the way I think about it is – our lives are becoming more and more dependent on the internet, right? Like imagine even during the virus crisis, everyone's kind of like sitting at home and realizing that they can do most of their work online, they can even like hang out with people uh, or Zoom or something like that. And and I think one thing people haven't really realized is um, you don't have the same sense of uh, who you are or what kind of assets you own on the internet versus the physical world. Right in the physical world, you'll have your ID card in your wallet, and you can like pull it out whenever you need to. Or uh, you can you can own a house, you can um, kind of like keep all of your uh, belongings in it. And we haven't reached that level of maturity uh, in the digital world, and I think we're getting there. And that's where blockchains play a, a big role because they really introduce at a fundamental level uh, property rights. And I think you you just had that uh, conversation with, with Kathleen about gaming and how gaming assets can be defined uh, uh, using blockchains. And I think you can make it even broader than that, like internet assets in general uh, would be defined through these blockchains and identity is a big part of it because you first need to kind of like define who you are before you start uh, owning other, other things online. Yes,
1: I think this idea, this property rights piece is, uh, it's interesting, the conversation around identity for, especially for folks who just start to think about it, it seems super abstract, right? It seems like this set of things that you haven't really thought about, but then they're also so intrinsic, so obvious, right? So you brought up the concept of property rights. And so the idea of a property, right? Like if you own something, well, who is the you that owns that thing? That's what the kind of identity mechanism is. That's what you were bringing up in the context of, of blockchains. Outside of gaming digital assets, what are the other types of uh, digital assets where those those property rights matter, and how does blockchain solve for that?
4: Yeah, I think some, some of these examples are like right in front of us, but we uh, it takes a little while to realize it. Uh, let's let's take Naval for example, right? Naval the the handle on Twitter. I mean, it's it's a, in some ways it's an internet property. It's very valuable. Uh, it might be worth a lot more than you know other distribution channels or even brands that exist on the internet but right now like it's basically just a entry in a database on twitter somewhere and it's it's entirely possible for someone like naval or others to directly be owners of their own assets and they are going these such assets are going to become more and more important even from a, a economic perspective right like uh, more and more people are now uh, making a living online right so if you're uh, it's, it's a it's a little bit like uh, you know, when people realize that they could rent out their um, their house on Airbnb and start making money off it, now convert that into uh, something digital. Like, let's say you have a skill online, or you have a reputation online, or you uh, or you're trying to monetize your attention, and all of these things will be linked back to your your identity and who you are. And those things, there would be like real dollar values on 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 some of these things because these are your real assets, right? The private keys that owns a username like Naval, there's a real dollar value uh, to that internet asset.
1: Well, so the Naval example is a really interesting one because we've come up in this paradigm where basically when Web2 came about, when social networks came about, we were kind of sharecroppers on someone else's digital property, right? We were allowed to accumulate audience on the basis of having interesting things to say or figuring out the rules of the system in terms of what was, you know, the algorithm was going to promote, but we al- were allowed to use that, that, uh, that territory, right? The audience that we built so long as we continue to play by that set of rules. And so long as the system or the, the, the kind of the, the, Property holders didn't actually change what they wanted the system to be. This has led to issues around, uh, you know, or questions of deplatforming and all these sort of things, where we realize that we are actually just kind of renting the space that we have. And the interesting paradigm shift that is, uh, I think that the potential that gets a lot of folks in blockchain exciting is Naval has the followers that he has because they're uniquely interested in his insights. And uh, and and the, it would be a shame for all of a sudden. All those people, all of that energy to just dissipate into thin air because of a seemingly arbitrary decision on the part of the platform. What if you could design something different? Now, the way that I think most people have tackled that question right now, I, I think you see it in the shift to email, right? This radical shift to holding email lists, which can be easily exported to CSVs. But you know, you've seen experiments, uh, I'm sure, on Blockstack and through other uh, other protocols. Do you think that it's possible that we actually have these kind of this different type of social social networks, different types of social channels where you actually own the audience that you build, or at least the distribution channel to those audiences?
4: Yeah, I think I think this is a, this is a very important point. Uh, anyone who is basically a content producer online, they realize the importance of distribution channels, right? I, th- I think Twitter recently did a very small experiment where uh, they slowed down the distribution rate of tweets. That's, that's, I think, my guess that that's what they did. So what would happen is that you're actually getting less impressions early on, and it it it, fe- it felt a little bit like you know someone has muted you, right? Like you you might have like fifty thousand followers, but only five hundred people are uh, even seeing your message in the in the initial hours or so. And I think there was a reaction to it, and, and moments like these they make you feel uh, as if like you have no control over your own content and your own distribution. And in in my case, like you know, I'm I'm. I just like randomly blab on Twitter or sometime I, I post about Blockstack. stack, but for some people like that's their livelihood, like they're, uh, they're content creators on YouTube or, you know, they have these distribution channels where their, their monthly uh, salary actually comes from those distribution channels. And if you cut them off, it's, uh, it, it's a, it's a very devastating situation for them. And I think that this is a fundamental issue where, um, we're moving more and more in the direction of like uh, uh, digitized lives. uh, More and more people are information workers. And at the same time, we're missing this fundamental layer of owning your own distribution channels, uh, basically having the, the, the similar structure to what exists in the physical world in many ways. It's not really there. I think the analogy would be that uh, we are all kind of like, you know, there's some uh, feudal lords and we all kind of like work for them. And at the, at the whim of someone, uh, they can take something away from us or kind of like uh, redistribute it somewhere else. And it makes everyone feel uneasy. So I think people do have understanding of what the base problem is. They can feel it in their gut, but they don't see a practical, easy solution to any of these things, right? Because starting social networks or starting any, any sort of a large movement is a a little bit of a network effect. Uh, I'm pretty sure that most people on crypto Twitter, they realize at a fundamental level like what kind of uh, problems we're talking about, but we haven't seen a crypto Twitter emerge because everyone just wants to be where everybody else is. And I think somehow uh, there there could be some clever hacks around uh, these initial network effects problems. Like for example, you could potentially just extend the Twitter protocol in a decentralized way. So you can like bootstrap the existing system uh, to be able, able to launch something else, and I think there are, there might be some uh, inter- interesting experiments uh, even on top of Blockstack that we might see in the in the coming months.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. The first wave of answers to this problem, I think theorized that you could use tokens to overcome that initial period, right? The bootstrap problem. I mean, this is what Chris Dixon was writing about in 2017. And it turns out, problematically, that tokens were so good at being a, uh, a financial asset that it, it it's not even necessarily that they wouldn't have done that as well, but they were so tradable, so instantly liquid, so powerful in that context mm-hmm. that it kind of subsumed that other uh, bootstrapping probability or possibility. Um, I, Maybe just to, to kind of wrap up, how do you think has COVID-19 impacted how we think about these problems, how we think about identity? Do you think, you know, either on the side of there's going to be new things included into our identity profiles, such as, you know, test results from, uh, from COVID-19 tests as we want to enter buildings, or on the other hand, just an awareness of the problems of, you know, that maybe in certain cases we're the frogs in the, in the pot with boiling water when it relates to how much information we share about ourselves?
4: Yeah, so I think I'll I'll separate the two. One is more about the virus crisis itself, and I think my my worry here is that um, if you look at history, a lot of times it's the times of crisis where certain um, kind of like fundamental rights are taken away from people, uh, never to really come back, right? And this might be one of those things where you know if uh, if governments want to really track. Uh, all of the citizens and even like large tech companies are stepping up to help them. And it becomes very hard to argue against that, hey, wait a minute, what about my privacy, right? Like, like it's a, it becomes a very tricky argument. But once you go down that road, and once those systems are in place where, you know, there is uh, full on surveillance happening, it, initially for good intentions, uh, I worry a lot that if you're not thoughtful about these, some of these solutions, the same systems can later on be used uh, to basically build uh, a surveillance state almost uh, around uh, around the citizens and take away some of our freedoms right but it's a it's a very tricky topic so my my hope here really is that we can be thoughtful about the kind of uh, solutions that are being implemented especially around because there could be like all sorts of uh, burner IDs, right? Like I'm willing to share certain information about myself over a certain time period without really attaching it to who I am. And also like, instead of uh, coming up with these large data sets that are sitting with a large tech company or a, or a large government, uh, it could be something where this data is actually distributed and it's mostly stays with the users and is used more on a as needed basis. And I think the time to think about those solutions is uh, is, is kind of like now. And on the other side, I think what you're uh, asking is, that, I guess, more on the what's the impact on society, given that everyone has been forced to stay at home and just interact with the, the rest of the world through computers. I do think that it's a fundamental shift because it's a cultural shift, right? And I think cultural shifts are uh, the hardest, but once they happen, it's basically it just unlocks a, a new type of behavior and a new type of thinking, and it it will remain it will make a permanent mark in my view, right? For example, like I'm. I'm a, I'm a tech geek, right? I, I spend so much time in front of computers anyway. But during COVID, I'm actually for the first time paying attention to what my home setup is like. Should I get like you know uh, a better recording equipment, or how much time am I actually spending online, and what uh, what kind of uh, different distribution channels are there for even getting uh, some of the educational information about Blockstack or other places out? And I don't think it really hit that hard. Uh, earlier, when we were mostly in the mindset of like, hey, we're going to office and we are kind of like uh, putting our head, heads down and, and doing work that way.
1: Yeah, I, I think that conscientiousness and uh, understanding the context that we operate in is hopefully something that's rising right now. So Munib, thank you so much for sharing your insights today. Really appreciate you being here.
4: Absolutely, always happy to be part of Consensus.
1: Thanks, Manim. All right. So we've now talked about gaming, entertainment, identity, the state of social networks and deplatforming. And after the break, we are back with a topic that is top of mind for many in the crypto world, many in the Bitcoin world, what the future of banking and money services look like. So stick around.
0: Support for this podcast and this message come from Eris X. With ErisX, you can trade spot and regulated futures on cryptocurrencies through a licensed U.S.-based exchange. ErisX believes in fair access for all. Sign up today to take advantage of zero fees and learn more at arisxcom consensus. This episode is also sponsored by the Stellar Foundation. The Stellar Network connects your business to the global financial infrastructure. Whether you're looking to power a payment application or issue digital assets like stable coins or digital dollars, Stellar is easy to learn and fast to implement. Start your journey today at Stellar.com org Our final sponsor is Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. In times like these, diversification is key. Consider Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund, ticker symbol GDLC. It's the only publicly traded investment product that offers diversified exposure to large cap digital currencies, all from your brokerage account. For more information, visit grayscale.co/coindesk. That's g r a y s c C-O a l e.co/coindesk.
1: Everyone is trying to build the banks of the future. And by everyone, I mean everyone. Tech companies are trying to build the banks of the future. Crypto companies are trying to build the banks of the future. Today's banks are trying to build the banks of the future. But for one new Bitcoin and digital asset bank, the question goes far beyond the digital experience that I think is the end of a lot of those conversations. Uh, I'm joined by Caitlin Long, a 22-year Wall Street veteran and founder and CEO of Avanti. Caitlin, thanks for hanging out.
5: Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. (laughs) It's nice to be with you.
1: Man, it's, uh, I was thinking back, um, the The last time we talked was the day that you announced, Avanti, which I think was February 24th. And I remember because it was a Monday and it was the first day that markets in the US even recognized that COVID-19 was going to be a thing, even yeah. though people like you had been talking about it since the end of January and talking about you know wh- what the, the potential might mean. But we'll, we'll get to that. But but let's come back to uh, Avanti first. What is Avanti? Uh, why did it feel important to, to focus on this, to start? A new type of financial institution?
5: Well, first of all, um, Avanti is in the process of applying. So we are not yet <laughs> a bank, but we will be applying for a bank license. And that's what's new and different. And it will be the first truly natively um, uh, crypto industry owned uh, bank that will be serving exclusively the, the, the crypto industry. And it, it, it will be a chartered bank if we – assuming we do get our charter with a Fed master account. Um, that's the, – the, the real aha of this is that there are no banks in the U.S. that are allowed to custody crypto assets because they're being blocked by their existing regulators. And the exchanges and custodians that do custody crypto assets do not have direct access to the Fed. So here's the aha – it is not possible to do delivery versus payment, atomic swap, et cetera, against a digital asset and a dollar, but Avanti will be able to bring that to the U.S. market for the first time, assuming we get our charter.
1: Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. Like I, like I said at the top of this, um, uh, you know, everyone's trying to reinvent banks in some way or another. But I think a lot of those things have to do with simplifying user experiences, right? Trying to kind of cater to the most basic kind of day-in, day-out functions where you guys are kind of designing from the ground up for a new type of ecosystem, a new type of asset. And I know that one of the things that makes you different is that you and Avanti and the state of Wyoming, where you're based, have a pretty different set of beliefs about issues like uh, property rights and reserves than today's financial institutions. Can you speak a little bit to just how you actually think differently, what the, the different belief set is, even, even beyond just the assets themselves?
5: Well, it's a belief set that is consistent with the core philosophy of crypto, that uh, that individuals should be able to have a direct property right in their financial assets. It doesn't exist in traditional financial assets today. And uh, Wyoming Law, was it, we created this special purpose depository institution, it, which is a new type of bank charter. It's a narrow charter that allows the bank to accept deposits, but not to lend. Um, So it's essentially a bank that is a a payment services institution uh, and it is It it is therefore able to both provide custody services and payment services within the same legal entity, so you don't have to you don't have to settle those two the two legs of the trade sequentially, which is exactly what happens now. Um, Even even those that are that are that are claiming there's direct settlement of the payment, there's still not direct settlement of the payment because you still have the counterparty risk that the bank might fail. Um, And so so uh, this this philosophy of property rights is really important, and it's ensconced in the Wyoming law, we will be able, assuming we get our charter, to offer um, uh, uh, custody services on, on a legal term that's called a bailment. It doesn't exist today. But when you, when you store a Bitcoin at an exchange or at a custodian, you don't actually own the Bitcoin. It's an IOU. But what's going to happen in Wyoming when the speedy banks, the so-called speedy banks, special purpose depository institutions open their doors, is that we will actually have the ability to have the same legal re- regime as a coat check or a valet parking regime where I'm giving up temporary possession of my property, but it's not, I'm not giving title to, to the custodian. Um, right now, you're giving legal title when you, when you have hold your exchange uh, your your coins at an exchange or a custodian. You're they're not only in possession of the private keys, but they also have the legal title. We're making the distinction that those two things are not necessarily the same thing. You can, like a valet parking arrangement or a coat check, a handover temporary possession, but not actually temp- uh, not actually ownership. And as a result, when you put your your coins into uh, a a third-party um, uh, custodian, you actually still retain the legal title, and all they are doing is just being a money warehouse for you, just providing a service. They're not a counterparty, and if they go bankrupt, you're not stuck in a uh, in a in a in a nasty, long, drawn-out bankruptcy process. That's a huge difference from what exists today. It doesn't exist in the market today.
1: It's really fascinating. I think that it's uh, it's almost um, it's almost easy to be reductive about uh, something like this in the sense of it being like, oh, cool, it's a crypto native bank. It works on top of crypto uh, in a way that's very different. But I think that in some ways, if you watch kind of the larger macro conversation about how the economy is structured, the conversation that people are starting to have more and more, which is a conversation that's very, very fluent for the Bitcoin world, but not so much for other areas, is the conversation about the, the fundamental nature of the system as inflationary versus deflationary. So uh, Jeff Booth recently wrote a book called The Price of Tomorrow, which is all about moving to a deflationary system that rewards savings rather than disincentivizes savings. And in some ways, the crypto community, the Bitcoin community that is the hodlers are at the vanguard of that shift where they've invested in an asset that is meant to uh, grow in value over time to reward savings uh, rather than be something that to participate in the economic system, you just have to lend it out, relend it and get further lines of credit. And and in some ways, it feels like Avanti is is maybe the first native institution to that different way of looking at the economy in general.
5: Yes, um, I think so. First of all, I want to clarify, we're not a crypto bank. That phrase is Mm -hmm. easy to to use, but but the, the services that we are providing on our balance sheet are exclusively US dollars. We are allowed to custody crypto through the trust powers of the bank. That may sound like a distinction without a difference, but to regulators, it's a big deal. So uh, so, so, I don't use that phrase, crypto bank. We are a bank serving the crypto industry, uh, that, that can provide custody services um, off our balance sheet. But um, to, to answer your question, yes, um, we, we are, as a, as a bank that's not lending, we're obviously not what, what a lot of folks think as a normal bank. And again, we, we don't have our charter yet, but the, the Wyoming Speedy Banks uh, in general, um, th- these, are, these are banks that, that have full access to deposit taking capabilities in the way that um, money transmitters or trust companies do not have in the United States. Uh, but um, um, we cannot make loans. And as a result, everything on the Speedy Bank's balance sheets is 100% backed by definition. Um, that the, the, the dollar deposit liabilities are 100% backed, required to be 100% backed uh, under the law by um, either deposits directly at the Fed or... Uh, treasury bonds or other so-called risk-free assets. Um, and, uh, and then even in the trust business, lending is permitted by the statute, but re-application is not permitted. That's where so many of the games are being played. Um, and frankly, I've, I've been pretty critical of, of the existing infrastructure in the, in the crypto industry because we have no clue whether any of the exchanges or custodians are solvent, um, I think the ones that actually do come into Wyoming will be making quite a statement when they come in, because if they can comply with that requirement, then that'll tell you that they're actually, uh, that, well, it's at least another indi- indicator uh, among many potential types of indicia that, uh, that that uh, the, the exchange or custodian is, is solvent. But right now, you really don't have any of them. Um, none of them are audited. Um, um, none of them are are publishing proof of reserves, and none of them are subject to legal regimes that require 100% reserves. Uh, and even uh, you know, in the in the state of New York, where a lot of the regulated ones have trust companies, there is no requirement not to rehypothecate assets. In Wyoming, there's an explicit requirement that that uh, the speedy banks cannot rehypothecate assets. They can lend, but you can't re-lend the same collateral a second time.
1: It's really interesting. It's it, one of the things that's been fascinating is seeing how much this sort of, this change, this different type of institution that you want to build goes hand in hand with redesigning. I mean, you you literally, this came out of in some ways, you designing or helping design a different regulatory regime to enable this type of thing, right? It's a different way of thinking of uh, of how to design it and then uh, a different application of the business. But I, so I, I wanted to go back, I guess, to you know what we've lived through in the last couple months. You and Devante, like I said, just just as it was really starting to hit home in the U.S. that this was going to be a thing. How has yeah. the narrative uh, for, for this, the motivation for it, or just the way that people perceive it, changed since that announcement? What are new challenges or what are new tailwinds that are helping your cause?
5: Well, uh, actually, it's, it's, it's been a tailwind. Um, I must say, on the engineering team hiring, uh, our CTO, Brian Bishop, who's amazing, um, has said... It usually would take three to four months to find the, the engineers with the skills that he's looking for, and he's able to find them um, in, in, in relatively short order. So that's been, uh, been something that's been an advantage to us. The other piece of this is, I think, the idea of having a non-lending bank. You know, when I first started talking to folks about this in January, a lot of folks were saying, you know, how would that be able to compete with a bank that can lend? Because a bank that can lend can, can make money off the leverage and can, uh, subsidize the cost of of doing business in a way that you would not be able to because you're not making a spread on your customers' deposits, and uh, and so ironically, the fact that you know interest rates are back down at zero now, um, and uh, and and in fact now we actually have some interesting questions. What do the balance sheets of traditional banks actually look like? The truth is, no one knows. The uh, decision has been made that. Uh, the loan losses are not going to have to be recognized this year. So 2021 is going to be the time when loan losses are, you know, when the actual cash flow uh, losses are are going to have to be recognized, um, even though they're not going to be recorded. Uh, as as much on an accounting basis up front. So we won't know how, how well capitalized the banks are until 2021. And that's about the time when the speedy banks will be uh, hitting the market. And so it's, it, it, the customers are going to have an interesting choice. Would you rather deposit your money at a bank that's not paying you interest, but is leveraged? Or would you rather deposit your money at a bank that's not paying you interest, but isn't leveraged? That's a, that's a pretty, in my view, pretty easy a pretty easy choice. Hey, I want to go back to the point on lending because I may have confused folks when I talked about um, the no rehypothecation because um, yes, a speedy bank can lend, but it's a non-lending bank. And that may seem like a logical contradiction. Here's the difference. And it it comes down to the fact that the crypto custody business is done out of the trust department of the bank. It's not lending for the bank's own balance sheet. So a customer can direct that, that it's deposited crypto be lent out to a willing lender, but the lender will not be the bank itself. So essentially, all the bank is doing is basically just providing a marketplace to match borrowers and lenders. Um, We don't intend to have a lending product up and running um, immediately. I'm laying out, though, that the statute in Wyoming does permit that. wanted to make that clear just in case. uh, I I was assuming there'll be Twitter questions about that. Uh, Wait a minute. How do you lend out of a non-lending bank? Uh, So hopefully now I answered it.
1: Yeah, sure. It sounds like it all comes back to the same principle of your money, like the property rights, like the the assets that you deposit with us are your assets, and we help you do things with them, but we don't uh, we don't take the title to them. So, uh, but well maybe I'll, I'll, I'll a last question uh, to wrap us up: Do you think the country is ready for this fundamentally different conversation about money and banking, or at least more ready maybe than we were before this crisis hit?
5: Oh yes. Um, I think actually one of the things that a lot of folks uh, have been talking about and in, in leading up to the having is how many of their friends and family have been asking them about Bitcoin for the first time. Now it's, it's been in the news in part because of the halving, I get that. But I actually think that um, it's not as much in the news as it was, you know, in the prior halving and the prior soft fork um, and, and uh, in the, in the bull market, obviously. Um, this is different. It's a different level of conversation with folks. Uh, and and um, I, the other piece of this is the institutional interest. When Paul Tudor Jones came out uh, and said that he's got one to 2% of his portfolio in Bitcoin um, wait till you see what happens with institutions. This, there are more coming. Um, we will have some announcements. Uh, Avanti is an institutional, institutionally focused bank, or will be, uh, assuming we get our charter, uh, and, and um, we're very focused on bringing in a new type of investor who hasn't been in this asset class before, in large part because the services around the asset class, the infrastructure that's been built was built for a retail customer base. And it's not up to par on institutional standards that the, if you just go look at the legal terms and conditions, some of them are just a joke it, and, and institutional attorneys for the buy side for big pension funds, big um, foundations, big endowments, sovereign wealth funds, right? I'm not talking about hedge funds. Hedge funds are known to take more risk and hopefully have higher reward. Pension funds and the like have much higher standards and they just can't touch a fly-by-night organization. They want their custodians to be banks um, and they and they need serious institutional quality, legal terms and conditions and and legal certainty with regard to whether their transactions will be final and will be recognized in a legal dispute. Those kinds of things we've been very focused on. Those are the bricks and mortar in Wyoming that we've built that other states just can't offer. Uh, And so I think the fact that we will hopefully now have an institutional custody bank um, that can custody crypto and have direct access to the Fed and service institutions with, with the standards that they require, we're, that, that is likely to bring in big institutional money and we're seeing it step-by-step-by-step by step by step. And, and that's what's different. It's not just the, the friends and family, it's also the big institutions.
1: Well, it's gonna be super exciting to watch. I wish you nothing but luck, Caitlin. I'm sure I'll talk to you again soon.
5: Thank you. Take care. Nice job on this conference, by the way.
1: Yeah, well, speaking of, that's a perfect segue. Uh, so this is we're wrapping up the end of the first phase. I mean, this conference is going on all weekend. There's a million other tracks. We'll talk about that at the at the top of the show or the end of the show. But we're kind of coming to the close of the 24-hour nonstop virtual event. Um, the team who put this together knew as soon as uh, as it became clear that New York Blockchain Week and and consensus were going to have to shift that they were going to have to reimagine something. So to wrap this up, I'm joined by June Ian Wong who is one of the lead producers on this event who's been with consensus for a long time uh, doing this event thinking through this event and I I want to uh, actually kind of just get into how I want to put this in historical perspective basically so June let's go back to the beginning what were the first CoinDesk consensus events that that you worked on and maybe how did it even come about uh, as an institution.
3: Yeah, sure. So, you know, um, we started Consensus back in 2015, which makes it this year the sixth edition. Um, Although it it feels far longer than that, I guess, you know, crypto time is is, is much quicker than human human time. Um, We started in 2015, you know, really on a shoestring. Um, You'll recall that the Bitcoin, that was the year Bitcoin had a big run up and and a subsequent run down. And so... You know, the markets were not very frothy and there wasn't actually that much um, interest or hype uh, around cryptocurrencies, right? This was one of those times when, you know, again, the, the obituary for Bitcoin was being written. Um, and so we really did it as a response to the fact that um, up until that point, there, there had been a big annual conference put on by the Bitcoin Foundation. Um, and that year, there, there wasn't one. Um, and so we really tried to fill that gap a little bit, and we thought, how can we create a platform for people to meet um, that reflects the diversity of fields that uh, cryptocurrency and, and blockchain is, right? Um, it's not enough to just get, you know, say software developers in a room. You have to get the software developers and the economists uh, and, the, and the whales uh, and the day traders, all, all of these people, the regulators, um, all of these people in the room for this thing to really work. Um, and so that was, that was the thinking behind the first consensus, um, and, and it turned out that, that people were looking for this kind of uh, diverse space, um, and it turned out that Coindesk was the, the entity that could convene all of these different, uh, very hard to convene groups.
1: So uh, take us through. I know uh, the events grew in size precipitously alongside the industry. 2018 was crazy, right? Uh, I mean, that was notable. That's where a lot of people uh, started kind of had their first consensus experience. It's one of the craziest, most overcrowded, overwhelming, but really exciting things ever. Was that a, a high point, a low point or a both on the on the consensus journey?
3: So I'll caveat that by saying, so I started Consensus back in 2015, but um, 2018 I attended it as an attendee, right? Uh, I had left mm-hmm. Coindesk. Uh, I was a reporter uh, with Quartz and I attended that like any normal attendee. Um, you know, fr- from my perspective that year, I thought it was kind of the perfect um, encapsulation of the industry, mm-hmm. right? It was a perfect proxy for what was going on in the markets, how people viewed um, the whole uh, the whole space um, it was crazy it was wild you know people were were parking Lambos outside um, you know in my view it was it was a highlight really
1: yeah yeah no I think that's a great way to put it okay so uh, when you think about uh, when you when you guys switched to this move to virtual what was most important to preserve about the offline experience versus what had to be rethought.
3: Yeah, you know, I, I'm just thinking back to the Soft Money show I, I hosted earlier with, with Annalise Milano, and we were talking about a lot of these issues, right? Um, you know, what makes money money? This is a multi-century, multi-thousands of years um, debate, right? Um, is is money valuable because of the thing it is made of, right? The 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 the, the, the metal ore that is dug out of the ground, like gold. Um, or is it valuable because of the credit va- credit value theory of money, which says uh, it's as good as you know the other person's word, right? Um, and I think this is where events, in particular, um, and in our industry in particular, uh, play such a pivotal role because um, what is a new form of money except for the social consensus uh, around. What that new form of money should be, right? Um, you know, in 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 the in the 19th century, um, people like John Stuart Mill talked about the veil of money, right? Which is this notion that money is really a neutral thing, um, which hides the true economic activity of uh, people bartering and exchanging goods and services, um, and then. Down, down the line, people thought, well, actually, maybe money isn't that neutral. Like, you know, money has its own agency, right? And this is the notion that people like Robert Schiller say put in place, which I think you'll agree with, this notion of narrative economics. Um, contagious ideas are the things that cause uh, economic activity, right? It's not just some kind of rational calculation of this or that. Um, and so putting all of those things in the context... Money is a is a deeply social activity, um, and conferences are, you know, one manifestation of this attempt for everyone to agree on what this money thing is. So for us, really, th- this this social dimension, you know, this sort of shelling point for the industry was was critical. Right, we needed to make a thing that was big enough to be seen across the internet, and big enough that uh lots of people could convene, coalesce and, and try and form some kind of consensus based on, you know, Brownian motion.
1: Hmm. Well, listen, I've you know, i had a, a, a front row seat to a lot of the production and seeing you guys shift into this different model has been incredibly impressive. Kudos to you, to Joanne Poe, to Michael Casey, Nolan Bowerly, Dasha, Aaron Stanley, Bailey Reutzel, uh, Lauren Leno. so many people on the team who who figured out how to shift this. And I wanna make sure that people understand as we wrap up this uh, special breakdown session that there is uh consensus distributors we've been going on programming throughout the week. Uh, you can go to the CoinDesk homepage and to the uh, uh, up to the top to the events button, you can register and once you're umbrella, you can go through a, a huge array of content. There's something like 112 sessions going on between now and Friday. Uh, you can find discussions about protocol developments in the foundations track. You can watch panels on investing in the markets track. You can get technical instruction in the unlock track. So uh, a huge number of different things to extend your consensus experience. Um, and even more, there's online workshops and programming for partners uh, uh, the World Economic Forum, the IEEE, the Oxford University. So, uh, and I guess the last piece is there's actually even networking through through this platform. So uh, you guys have left no detail unturned. I'm super impressed. And uh, June, thanks so much for hanging out and to the whole team again, congrats.
3: Thanks so much, Nihil. If I may also call out uh, the great work of uh, Stephanie Rio and Peter Bords, uh helping to keep the trains running on time behind the scenes.
1: We need a, an extra show just for the the list of people who made this possible. So thank you to all of them, the ones mentioned and not.